Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Um, it is the it is March first, and we have a special episode today with a great guest. Um, Tammy is going to introduce her right now, but the topic that we are going to talk about, obviously, I, I don't know, as one could guess, is um, what's happening in Ukraine, and uh, we wanted to give a better perspective than the three of us just kind of <laughs> gabbing about the news, and, you know, doing half half tossed off takes, which seems to be, I don't know, I've noticed in the news recently, I this I, I do not mean this as an indictment, because I fully understand it as somebody who's, who has to sometimes come up with takes. <laughs> it's like, everybody has learned about this at the same time. So it's almost like you can see like the media's brain in like first grade <laughs> oh of a God. certain type of education, right? And they're like saying things that first graders say. Right, like stuff like magnets attract one another if you take the plus and positive polarity, and then they go together. You know, and I feel that way, and so we did not want to do that, right? Like we didn't want me, Tim, and Andrew to be like, I don't know, you know, like it's crazy. Like, uh, you know, did you know that in 1962 this thing happened? Like, whoa! So this will hopefully be a much better conversation. So, Tammy, go ahead. Okay. Uh, we're really happy to have somebody who doesn't just have hot takes and didn't just learn where Ukraine is located. Welcome, Sophie Pinkham. Sophie is a friend of the pod and the author of the fantastic 2016 book, Black Square, Adventures in Post-Soviet Ukraine. Um, I've been reading Sophie a lot in the New York Review and other places. Her essays and reporting on Russian and Ukrainian politics, culture, and history are in all the good magazines. Um, Sophie is also a new mom and has a master's in Russian, Eurasian, and Eastern European studies, and a PhD in Slavic languages and literature. So she's kind of legit, more like Andy than Jay and me. Um, welcome, Sophie. All Thanks right. so much for being here. Hi. <laughs> Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. You must Even... be very busy these days or Seriously. The, the past week. Yeah. What's your inbox what, like? It's so crazy. I'm getting, and also, actually, my husband is an expert on economic sanctions. Oh, so, no way. Yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> insane around here. Um, wow. Just nonstop media requests. It's like feeding frenzy. Every publication oh my I've God. ever heard of and many I've never heard of are contacting us. <laughs> so, well, thank you for making the time for yeah, us. Yeah, seriously. Though. Oh, it's my pleasure. Yeah, we're really lucky. Um, I mean, maybe you could start just by saying a little bit about what you're hearing from inside Ukraine, because we know you have a lot of sources and friends there, and it must be just a really emotional and difficult time to to be corresponding with them. Yeah, I mean, it's an absolute nightmare. And um, I mean, one strange thing about the situation is that obviously the, you know, Russia has, had been massing troops on the Ukrainian border since uh, since last spring. Um and so obviously there was a warning and actually kudos to military analysts like uh, this guy, Michael Kaufman, who's risen to international prominence recently due to his incredible knowledge about the Russian military. But, um, you know, these sort of military specialists were saying that there's no way that Russia would be massing this many troops unless they were planning a major invasion of Ukraine. Um, but for sort of political analysts, it it just didn't seem to make sense. Um, and of course, the Biden administration was was warning that Russia was planning an invasion, but their credibility is not that great for various reasons. Um, you know, many people are not so inclined to to trust their predictions. 
Um, and it just didn't, it didn't seem to make sense in a lot of ways. And I'm, uh, I don't know, I feel kind of ashamed, I guess, to say that I, I didn't believe that this was going to happen. I mm-hmm. thought that Putin would probably send troops into Donbass, which is the Eastern Ukrainian region that has been controlled by separatists, uh, Russian backed separatists since 2014. I thought that he would probably sort of reignite that part of the conflict, but um, you know, the Biden administration was saying uh, Russia is going to invade Kiev. And so I lived in Kiev for several years. It's very, you know, it was sort of my second home for a long time. I have a lot of close friends there. Um, and I don't know, maybe I was in denial, but I really didn't believe that they would invade Kiev. I didn't think they were going to come in. And then um, actually I was like trying to get some sleep and my husband was like hiding my phone and acting really weird. And I was like, what's the matter? What's the matter? And then he was like, I have to tell you, Russia, Russia invaded oh, wow. Ukraine. And, um, and my, and my Ukrainian friends didn't think that he was gonna, um, that he was, that Putin was gonna invade either. Um, I mean, Ukrainians have such a high tolerance for stress. I have one really close friend actually, who's now stranded in New York because she came to work on this Ukrainian fashion showcase. Um, and we had talked about whether she should go to New York. And I was like, I don't, you know, I don't, I think they're exaggerating. They're not going to invade Kiev, you know, and she's responsible. She, has uh, several small children that she's basically responsible for. So obviously, you know, she wasn't going to plan to leave them if she thought that there would be an invasion, but now she's stranded in New York um, indefinitely. But we just didn't, we didn't think that it was really going to happen. So, yeah, so it was, it was a huge and devastating shock. And the situation now is just absolutely terrifying. Um, from Ukraine and from all over Ukraine, because again, I really thought that this was going to be a more localized conflict along the lines of 2014 and that it would um, sort of follow this pattern of Putin's of sort of relatively limited, relatively low cost interventions that, you know, hurt a lot of people, cause a lot of damage, um, you know, deeply destabilized Ukraine, but, but weren't massive full on military operations. And, you know, I, I should have accepted the military analysis because you don't bring that many troops to the border if you're not planning something big. But I expected something local. And instead, it's everywhere in Ukraine. So it's really the situation where there's there's nowhere safe, even Western Ukraine, which is, you know, traditionally very anti-Russian, very anti-Soviet. And I never imagined that the Russians would be attacking Western Ukraine of all places. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's like all, I mean, some of my friends stayed in Kiev and are just like hiding from bombs. Other, a lot of them are refugees. Um, some of them Mm. have managed to make it out of Ukraine. Others haven't and are sort of in places of relative safety. But, um, I mean, to be honest, I've resisted any like Hitler comparisons or World War II comparisons. Um, but as I think about what's what's going on it really it, it does feel like a kind of world war ii scenario for ukrainians at least and it's just incredibly frightening mm. and it got much much worse um today because it seems like putin has he he seems to have thought that he could just come in to ukraine and everyone would like lay down their weapons and just welcome them in or just give up right away um, which was insane and totally delusional. Um, and having been greeted with very intense opposition, um, he unfortunately seems to be ramping up the attack. So 
um, today he's been, um, they were dropping like, uh, they're basically bombing Kharkiv um, and bombing civilian targets. Um, Kharkiv mm-hmm. is um, extremely, it's in um, northeastern Ukraine and it's extremely close to the Russian border. But um, it's crazy because I actually also have some close friends who live right across the Russian border in Belgorod, who I used to spend summers with in Ukraine, well, in Crimea, which was then in Ukraine. Um, and it's it's crazy because they can see the bombings from from Belgorod because it's so close yeah. uh, to, to Kharkiv. And, you know, it's a, they're devastated also. It's a place where they have lots of friends and used to, you know, just hang out on the weekend all the time before the border became much more tightly controlled. So, um, yeah, it's what like you... it's like the U.S. is bombing Vancouver or something, you know. Um, yeah. Right. It's like, very intimate. What, what do you attribute that uh, sort of disconnection between what, you know, all the sort of smart and knowledgeable people thought was going to happen and and then this sort of surprise, right? Like where it really does feel like everyone was saying one thing and, and then suddenly this whole other reality that takes place. Like, well, what, what do you think? Like, do you think this is like a spurious decision that was made? Do you think it was that there was some sort of like, um, you know, that it was purposefully done in this sort of way? Or is it just that like the act of invasion in itself is so you know rare and that it's so uh that it's so it was so out of the realm of possibilities that like you know like it just seemed like it wasn't going to happen um i think there are several factors i think the first is that um it it really really doesn't it doesn't make sense on a certain level for Russia to invade Ukraine, um, actually from, from several perspectives. First of all, there's no reason for them <laughs> to invade Ukraine. I mean, it's it's kind of basic. And, and again, we should know, like, that doesn't stop countries from invading each other. They do do that. And America has done that, obviously. Um, but But still, it's hard to accept that a country will invade another country for really no good reason at all. Um, and it seems like it ought to be very much against uh, Putin's self-interest, right? right. He's like yeah. sending, he's sending Russian soldiers to die for absolutely no reason. And most Russians, I mean, there is so much Russian propaganda, but ultimately, again, it's like the U.S. invading Canada. You know, it's <laughs> it's not this like far away thing where you can you know, vilify people and not, you know, not that it's any more acceptable to go and, you know, bomb Muslims across the world, uh, across the, you know, another side of the world. But, you know, people speak the same language, they know each other, they have relatives in these countries, they're extremely closely connected countries, in spite of the, you know, the, the conflict that's been going on since 2014. And also, of course, the long history of Russia's oppression of Ukraine. But, um, it's not a good idea, you know, and there are correspondingly, you know, the biggest protests um, in many years are going on in Russia right now. And it has to be stressed that it's almost impossible to protest in Russia. I mean, if you have 2000 people protesting in St. Petersburg or Moscow or wherever else, like every single one of those people, even if if you just stand on a street in Russia right now, literally, you stand there completely alone. It has a name in Russian. The like, um, what is it? 
solitary picket because there are laws against people gathering in groups, mm-hmm. right? Um, so it's basically illegal to have any protest, even with three people. But now, even if you stand alone on a street corner in silence with a piece of paper that says no to war, you can be arrested in like literally one minute. And, right. you know, if you're just arrested and don't have your, like your head smashed, you're you're lucky. So to have thousands and thousands of people protesting in Russia is a really big deal. Um, and then, of course, there are the, the sanctions that are happening right now, which are completely crashing the Russian economy and will be absolutely devastating for ordinary Russians. Um, and that's not to say that they're going to you know, suddenly rise up and overthrow Putin. Unfortunately, I don't think that's going to happen, but it's certainly not going to be you know, not going to have a directly positive effect on Putin's um, popularity. Um, So it's a huge contrast with something like the annexation of Crimea in 2014 after the Maidan revolution in Ukraine, which was, you know, no one died. Um, It was a terrible violation of Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity, but nobody got killed. It was done overnight. It, you know, it didn't cost much. on any level and sort of made Putin look really good. This is the antithesis of that. So I think it was hard to accept that Putin would do something that seems to make so little sense. Um, yeah, yeah. So, like, I mean, ha- dun, dun. that's the thing that I, I guess two questions. The first, oh, go ahead, Andy. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Well, I mean, I just oh, thought sorry. what you were suggesting earlier, Sophie, was that there's a sort of boy who cried wolf too many times effect with the New York Times and the United States kind of like that was my reaction. I don't know about the three of you when I just saw this in the headlines every day. I was like, oh there's there's another Iraq, right? Um so you didn't want to believe it. Um and I guess one thing I'm curious about, I I try to try to make I try to make sense of this. I'm as a total outsider, but you know coming in very late and you know I read Putin's speech. I was like trying to make sense of like what is his rationale for that. I do think that, you know, I guess I'm curious, like, is there a way you could construct a rationale for this from his perspective, even if you obviously disagree with it, in the sense that he talks about feeling like um, betrayed by the hypocrisy of NATO and the West and so on. Um, To me, this, you know, you brought up World War II. To me, this kind of smacks of stuff you read about with, um, in my, what I study is Japan and reading about like the people who decided to go it alone because they were sick of the hypocrisy of the West, quote unquote, in the thirties. I mean, I'm sure, you know, Nazism is the same way and Italy is the same way. Um, And so, you know, it'll probably end badly when, you know, but like there is a way to kind of reconstruct in his head, like how, and I almost wonder like that's, um, yeah. Is that like an exercise worth indulging in? Because right now the coverage is to my mind, very much like, understandably so like he's evil this is a bad this war is unjust and all that stuff but it does seem like i don't know i'm just kind of curious like where where is this coming from you know and is there a way to explain it rather than just kind of dismissing it as like the irrational behavior of a crazy man mm-hmm. yeah i mean i think that to dismiss it as the irrational behavior of a crazy man is um is is to dismiss it too quickly. Um, And I definitely do think that there are um, some kind of deeper roots to it. And there are, there are certainly trends that we can identify that have been going on for many years since the time when Putin seemed a lot more rational and actually a lot more friendly (laughs) than he does now. Um, I think that Western actions have tended to really alienate Putin a lot. Um, and of course, people have often talked about um, 
the 2008 uh, declaration right. by Bush in Romania um, when he talked about admitting Georgia and Ukraine right. to NATO, right? And it was a very, it was a weird situation um, because obviously NATO was not going to admit Georgia or Ukraine anytime soon and probably ever, right? Um, but George Bush had this kind of ideological vision um, and he, I mean, I mean, Bush, there's a very interesting book by this geographer, um, Gerard Toll, he's an Irish geographer, um, called The Near Abroad, um, or Russia's Near Abroad. Um, I reviewed it for the New Republic a few years ago, but I recommend it for people who want the kind of deeper backstory um, on, on NATO expansion and sort of um, ways in which the West may have antagonized yeah. Russia. And also George Bush's kind of evangelical approach to um, right. the spread of democracy, right? That he right. kind of felt that he could gather any country into his flock if he could only, right. you know, persuade them to see the the light of freedom um, and didn't think about the kind of more complicated power relations. Um, and there was John McCain, of course, um, who right. was involved in that as well and who was particularly close to Saakashvili, right? In, in Georgia and Saakashvili was like his, not his intern, but um, uh, <laughs> he was like almost John McCain's intern. And Saakashvili wow. like drank the McCain Kool-Aid and definitely thought in 2008 that America was going to come and save Georgia. And he learned the hard way that America would not come and save Georgia. Um, yeah, just as America did not come and save Ukraine in 2014. Right. It was interesting um, reading that it's not just the like far left or whatever. It's like people like uh, Stephen Walt, I think his name is at Harvard and John Mearsheimer, the realists, right. Who are kind of putting the blame on this thing they call liberal internationalism, this desire to like spread your values around the world. And their framework was, this makes much more sense within the framework of spheres of influence. Um, and you know, like that's, is, which is amoral, right. It's like, it's not about values. It's not about good or bad. It's just, these are the spheres of influence. Um, but I, I almost kind of think like that might be a useful way to look at this, not in the sense of, in the sense that it kind of, eva it kind of, I guess what I'm worried about is the very jingoistic way it's being portrayed in the U S um, and f future consequences of that, you know, like if, and when this is over, like the, I think a lot of people in the U S will be emboldened to continue to kind of expand outwards and cause Putin's an evil man and then China's evil and X, Y, Z country is evil. And um, I don't know. I, I do kind of feel like there's a hostility to thinking about, those questions right now because people will accuse you of being a Putin apologist. But um, I, 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 I've been thinking about like, is there a way to think about this without apologizing for Putin, but also like not making it about the good U.S. versus the evil Russia um, in such a one-sided way? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a very delicate balance to walk. And I mean, some people have made the point, and then are you know everyone piles on them for being like vulgar leftists or whatever. I, I mean, I've. <laughs> The level of hatred of leftists among everyone right now is so yeah. incredibly high. Like, if I even say the word leftist to anyone who cares about Ukraine right now, they, like, basically mm. kind of start spitting in my eyes. Um, but, uh, and, and this NATO argument is very unwelcome. Um, mm. But, yeah, I mean, people make the argument, what would America do if Russia tried to recruit Mexico into a security organization right. with it and it's like obviously the u.s would go insane right um or cuba so, that did, that did happen. Like, who even knows what they would do yeah um so so yeah it's not surprising that russia is mad that 
you know, the U.S. is kind of like flirting with Ukraine. And one of my criticisms over the years and one of the big questions that I've had as someone who, you know, lived in Ukraine and cares extremely deeply about the welfare of Ukraine and Ukrainians is the extent to which, you know, the U.S. in particular, but also the EU um, and NATO have put Ukrainians in danger by this, with this kind of flirtation. And yeah. uh, it's, uh, what's the word? It's kind of a, it's a disingenuous flirtation, right? Because why why talk about letting Ukraine join NATO when you know you're not going to let Ukraine join NATO? You know, yeah. why, mm-hmm. why, you know, trumpet your love of Ukrainian democracy if you're not going to step in and defend Ukraine militarily if they're invaded by their neighbor? You know, you should sort of choose. And I think that the way that um, the U.S. especially, above all, um, has sort of loved to publicize its support of Ukraine without really backing that up. Um, or even, you know, investing in a serious way in Ukraine's economy rather than just giving them money with which to buy U.S. weapons yeah. that then drive Russia insane with rage and are not actually enough weapons to make Ukraine secure against Russia because they're not going to be right. able to get enough weapons, right? They, yeah. Russia has like the second most powerful military in the world and is a nuclear power. Um, so I, I, I think, I think that, um, yeah, there, there, there is clear evidence that a lot of, uh, a lot of the Western policy towards Russia has been antagonistic and I think also has specifically endangered Ukraine over the last 20 years. But at the same time, it's also important to acknowledge that Putin's use of the NATO threat is also quite disingenuous um and it's an important kind of internal strategy for him is to Mm. whip up uh like rage about and paranoia about um nato within russia it's an important domestic thing for him and i think i mean he like in the declaration of war against ukraine he kind of made it clear that he knew that the west wasn't going to let nato in you know i mean everyone knows that the West won't let NATO in. So it's important not to make Putin seem like an innocent victim, obviously. So it's a a delicate line to walk and almost everyone's using it cynically. (laughs) Yeah. And almost no one has managed to walk that line. It's It's very hard to do. And obviously this is an environment right now that's like so crushing to sort of honest or open debate. Yeah. Are you, are you surprised by the amount of uh, support that there has been, like in the West, for the U- for Ukraine? Like, I've, I've, I mean, I will just say, as someone who's not so informed on this, like, it's surprising to me. You know, like, uh, like I, it seems like, I mean, it's not just things like lighting up the, um, what's the building in New York, Empire, Empire State, State Building, <laughs> or, or, um, you know, having like everyone from Ted Cruz to you know, every like democratic politicians tweet about it. It's like members of just the public, right? Like people I know, like, uh, you know, people like they are sort of riveted in this conflict that they didn't know existed. I would say what, 12 days ago or something like that. (laughs) And that they're, you know, like even barstool sports, you know, is out here like being like, let's go, you know, the ghost (laughs) of Kiev, like, let's do it. You know, like, are you, are you surprised by, by the sort of, by the, by the, by the, and I think that we should say it's just, it is the West, you know, like I think it is sort of Europe and, and, and the United States. Um, are you surprised by that reaction? I am surprised by that reaction. And I mean, honestly, like 
thinking about it over the last years, you know, part of the reason that I really felt that the West should not take antagonistic measures towards Russia with respect to Ukraine and like, you know, send them big weapons and things like that was because I thought that if Russia got too angry and decided to kind of renew its imperialist project in Ukraine, that Ukraine would be left on its own, which is what happened to Georgia really and in 2008 and what for the most part happened to Ukraine in 2014. Um, they got, you know, they got a little bit support of support and um, some support, but not definitive support. Um, yeah, I thought that Ukraine would be abandoned. Um, and I'm not sure what it is. I mean, think Ukraine kind of became a meme. I think that it's also it, it does it has kind of fed on the what are many years now in the U.S. especially, but also in Western Europe of it sort of I don't know obsessive animosity towards Russia. Yeah. Um, and obviously there was all the Trump stuff and right. Russia Gate yeah. and everyone loves to hate Vladimir Putin, right? Um, so <laughs> I think to some extent the popular support has to do more maybe with um, people being so ready to hate Putin than with them knowing anything about Ukraine. Although yeah. I think it also helps, you know, that and I had an article, the article I wrote for New York Magazine about Zelensky, the Ukrainian president that came out today. I think it does help to have this, you know, very sympathetic, telegenic, right. um, sort of gifted gifted performer. I don't mean performer in a pejorative way. Right. Um, but <laughs> Literally. You know, some, yeah, I mean, he's a, he started as a comedian. <laughs> yeah. um, so, and he's very, very sympathetic. He's like the antithesis of Putin in his public image. Um, and he's sort of in, become this like instant internet hero. And I think that actually really helps. He's like well. the first, uh, he's the first politician to not look ridiculous wearing a flak jacket. I was thinking about that. <laughs> yeah. was like, you know, like when George Bush was like mission accomplished and like, you know, or when he was, when, you know, that thing where they're like after 9-11, George Bush threw a strike at Yankee Stadium. And he had a flak jacket under his Yankees jacket. And he's just like, oh my God, shut up. You know? <laughs> oh um, yeah. I mean, we, uh, You've written a lot about this, so yeah, I don't know, Tammy. You're just like, uh, I think we should talk, like let's let's talk about Zelensky a bit. Yeah, yeah, Sophie. Do you want to just take us through kind of? I think people have a general sense now that we've all been obsessively reading about Ukraine all week, but you've written for many years about this sort of progression through the recent presidents, and you know, after the Maidan protests, um, you know, basically getting Poroshenko and then switching over to Zelensky, this, you know, guy whose story is sort of unbelievable, how he comes out of a sitcom to essentially replicate the plot of the sitcom and becoming president. Um, but it seems like generally you've been quite approving of of him as president and, you know, certainly his handling of events over this week. So, you know, what kind of guy is he besides handsome and telegenic? And, you know, how do you think the people of Ukraine right now are sort of responding to his leadership? Mm -hmm. Well, it, it was interesting because so after Maidan um, and Yanukovych, who was the president during the Maidan protests, of course, fled to Russia. Um, yeah. And then they had an election um, and Poroshenko was elected. A lot of people like to say that Maidan was like or a certain type of leftist. Um, and others will say that Maidan was like a coup and Poroshenko right. is a junta, which is also the, the Poroshenko government was a junta, which is 
also um, a Russian propaganda talking point. That's wrong. There was a free election. Poroshenko was freely elected. But it's interesting because Poroshenko was, um, you know, he's like an old, he was an oligarch. Um, yeah. He was the chocolate king. The chocolate guy. Yeah, yeah. yeah the chocolate king. <laughs> Among other businesses, he had this big chocolate company. But um, but he he was an oligarch and people just wanted him because they were really sort of scared uh, yeah. by what had happened with Crimea and then with Donbass and felt that he would be kind of a stability candidate. Um, and he ended up kind of tacking, tacking nationalists, you could say, um, pretty quickly um, and sort of deciding to, to play that card, but things went badly. There's really, there's really no Ukrainian president who's ever been successful or who anyone has liked after like one year. That's just the fate of Ukrainian presidents. <laughs> like Korea. Um, yeah, they are often like thrown out of government after mass protests in Kiev. Right. That's kind of like a routine event at this point in Ukraine. So Poroshenko became miserably unpopular, but um, kind of tried to play the nationalism card more and more. And so uh, in 2019, he ran on the platform of army language faith. Um, so, you know, being sort of more militaristic, um, emphasizing only the Ukrainian language, yeah. um, enmity towards Russians, etc., um, religion. Um, and then uh, Zelensky appeared on the scene as this much younger, kind of fresher guy who is from um, sort of Eastish Ukraine. He's from the Dnipro region. Um and is a native Russian speaker rather than a native Ukrainian speaker, although of course he speaks Ukrainian fluently as well. Um, and he, yeah, he he ran on this sort of reconciliation and peace platform and made it very clear that for him a priority was to end the war in the East, um, which I thought was really good. And you know, I think seventy nine percent of Ukrainian voters agreed, and he won in a huge landslide. Um, but he promptly again as is the way with ukrainian politicians he promptly you know became extremely unpopular as well and for the last few years everyone i know in ukraine has just been posting about their like hatred and disgust towards zazinski um partly because i mean he you know he he was a comedian he wasn't the <laughs> best he was not the best politician it's like yeah. he doesn't know how to do politics um <laughs> And also, he wrote that he was he wrote that he was pretty pro Western. Um, is that a popular view in the country, like pro EU, pro NATO? Yeah, they actually put it in. Well, I mean, it's become much more popular. I think now probably almost everyone yeah, in Ukraine yeah. desperately wants to be in NATO and the EU. And uh, Zelensky signed like the Ukraine's EU application or something today in his. In his black oh, yeah, jacket. Yeah. Uh, so now people want to. Yeah, he's always been pretty, pretty pro-Western, although it's a little bit complicated. I do think, I mean, how can I truly know what is in the heart of Zelensky? But um, <laughs> I, I do think that he is someone who really understands that there is nothing worse than war. Um, and really didn't want Ukraine to be involved in a war and was not, he, I would say that he didn't really um, kind of court um, alliances with 
the West in the same kind of spectacular or showy way that some Ukrainian presidents have done, maybe because he was trying to kind of uh, steer a calmer path. Um, but for him, one of the problems of his tenure has been that he has been almost kind of besieged by the um, the nationalist element in Ukrainian politics, um, which basically, which is not the majority, um, but is very vocal, has some really important um, supporters in the government, um, is also armed <laughs> due to the whole Donbass conflict, um, and, and has sort of at various periods openly threatened violence against the government. Mm -hmm. um, so he kind of he kind of caved, um, he kind of caved to them. Um, These are the, this ago, is like the right wing kind of group that you've been right, that you've written about in the past. Yeah. Yeah. There's a right wing fashion. I mean, yeah. there's, there's, there's sort of the ultra right wing, really scary nationalists in Ukraine, which are a very <laughs> small minority. It's right. like a very, very small group it's like of people. A thousand people right? Yeah. But you know, right. a small group of people who are heavily armed, can mm -hmm. have an outsized effect on a country. Um, and then there's sort of a more mainstream nationalist gotcha. element, which is much larger, of course, and includes a lot of the Ukrainian intelligentsia. Um, so Zelensky kind of tacked nationalists, and he was extremely unpopular um, until this war started. And now I think people have like mm -hmm. absolutely rallied behind him, and he's been incredibly brave. Um, Interesting. And the speeches he's been making, I think, are really brilliant. How should just, we think about this idea? I mean, you wrote uh, you wrote about him, I think, what two years ago in the New York Review, right? And then you wrote about him today as well, and um, and uh, obviously somebody who's been on your mind for a long time before this conflict. And this idea is interesting, you know, like this guy is an entertainer, right? Like he, uh, I think you wrote today, he's much more Sasha Baron Cohen than like Jason Statham, and so like him saying these <laughs> tough lines is like. It's not like he, you know, it's not like Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Like where, Arnold Schwarzenegger, like where um, if Arnold Schwarzenegger did something and you could almost clearly identify it from some movie that he was in, then it would seem kind of campy in a way, right? But this is, um, I'm not trying to make light of the situation, but what we have is like, you know, like we, we have is this sort of dual campaigns, uh, information campaigns that are going out. The first is, uh, you know, like sort of typical Russian propaganda that is going out. And then you have these images that have really captivated the world, whether it's Zelensky giving speeches, photographs of him, you know, these sorts of, some of these things have ended up being not, you know, like debunked in a way, like the Snake Island incident where the Ukrainian soldiers like, you know, go fuck yourself to the Russian military. And um, Zelensky comes out and says that those people are all dead and that, you know, they're heroes of Ukraine or something like that. So, like how much? Like how does his past, right? Uh, sort of. Do you think, in what ways does it influence the way in which he's been leading through this? And like, are there things that you pick up, things that you see where you feel like, uh, oh, well, you know, like this is, you know, this is somebody who is trained as like a person who's supposed to make you feel these different types of things. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I feel like in general, in, in sort of world politics, um, where there's this increasing move to just a total kind of, I don't know what the word would be like mediaization of politics, right. That's so accelerated by the internet and by instant access to video. Right. Um, so yeah. actors, 
professional performers, I think, have <laughs> more of an advantage than than ever um, in politics today and in influencing what's happening. Um, and it's interesting how, I mean, people are so credulous <laughs> a lot of the time. And this is something that I've been thinking about sort of constantly since um, since the war in Ukraine first started. Um, and then, of course, with with Trump, um, the way that people believe that propaganda is always one sided. Right. So it's like the Russians have propaganda and everything we say is true uh, or everything mm-hmm. Ukraine says is true. Um, Trump has propaganda and fake news and everything the Democrats say is true. Right. It's like, no, politics is always full of propaganda from (laughs) all sides and especially in elections and in war. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Everyone is using propaganda. That's just how politics work. And uh, fake news is propaganda like it's always existed. Um, And the Ukrainian government is putting forth absolutely massive amounts of propaganda also, which is like normal of a government under siege in an absolutely desperate existential struggle. It's normal for them to be disseminating propaganda, but um, it's, it just spreads so fast now because of the internet Um, and and it's working really well. It's been looking at Twitter lately. It's insane. Like, it's it 75 percent, totally I think. I just guess. Seventy-five percent of what is being said about what's happening in Ukraine is at best unverified and probably false. Like mm-hmm. you you just you can look at it, but don't believe it until I, I actually it reached a new level yesterday because there was this article by a reporter who I know. I know she speaks Russian fluently. She's a good reporter. I trust her. And she published an article that said, that reported that the mayor of Kiev had said to her personally that Kiev was encircled and there was no way for people to leave Kiev. And I was like, okay, (laughs) this is safe to retweet because like it was reported by someone I know and you know, it was, it's something that the mayor of Kiev said to her in person in an interview like this, this I can retweet. It's not like some video, some guy put up that might or might not be like uh, Mariupol. And then a few hours later, the mayor of Kiev was like, that's fake news. And everyone started saying that like, people were saying that his account had been cloned by the Kremlin and people were attacking the reporter for like spreading propaganda or something. And I was like, what the hell is going on. And the mayor of Kiev was saying, I misspoke. And you just, who knows what happened? I, it seems like maybe he told the truth. Maybe he just made a mistake. He was panicked. Maybe wow. he told the truth and then was told that he shouldn't have told the truth. But um, but yeah, I mean, the it's like the, the term fake news is being used to generate fake news at this point. Mm. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's a crazy situation. I don't, I, oh I've really... It's like, it's so beyond like the, like what I thought was possible in terms of mobilizing. It seems like every person on the internet, (laughs) it's actually like, I, I think that the cause is, you know, like I think invading everything, like this is value 
you know, value abstracted from any sort of value in terms of that. But like, it's somewhat terrifying to see how quickly the, like this information is going around. Like I don't, and some of it is like ludicrous, right? Like they're showing like Palestinian activists yelling at Israeli military people and saying that this young Ukrainian girl is standing up to, they're in the desert. She's wearing a t-shirt, you know? And like, it's, it's, it's distributed everywhere. And then you see, Mm -hmm. um, and then you see, uh, you know, like uh, like the Ukrainian defense ministry, I guess, tweeted something out about like, a, you know, shooting down of a not of a Russian fighter. And it was like the footage from a video game. Right. So like it's not once <laughs> oh like gosh. you said, Sophie, like I don't think that this is something where you assign blame to like government. Of course, the government under siege is going to marshal every resource it has to try and convince the world, like especially if they want people to intervene. But I'm just like, it's been stunning to see how fast it's Mm. been and how like sort of total it's been. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's interesting with Zelensky also, um, there was an article about um, in The Guardian yesterday about that was like uh, Zelensky's best weapon is the telephone right now. And he's apparently been spending you know tons of time just calling every world leader he can and trying to drum up support. But it's interesting because he immediately tweets about it and he seems to what he seems to do is to tweet like thank you um turkey for the great conversation today i'm so happy you will block the bosphorus so that russian warships cannot reach us and then turkey is like we did not agree to block the Bosphorus. <laughs> he's using like he's using like job interview uh, tactics, you know. He's like, he he's is. Like, that oh, is yeah. what he's, he's doing. Like, <laughs> that he's like, is what hey, he's doing. Great talk, great lunch, and you know, like yeah, I'm, I'm so glad happy we, you hired me. 80, <laughs> 85, 85 sounds great, you know. And, <laughs> like wait, what? <laughs> exactly, exactly, but. But it like it's work. <laughs> His tactics are working. Not necessarily that he can get right. you know Turkey to suddenly block the Bosporus, <laughs> but I think that the the really for me shockingly rapid and really extreme reaction, um, especially of Europe actually and of the EU and of Germany, which is like overturning yeah. its right. its whole post World War II policy and is now deciding it's going to spend two percent of its GDP on the military, which is horrible. Um and yeah. the EU sending fighter jets and it's like, guys, Russia is a nuclear power. Yeah. Like you should think yeah. this through. And it it's escalating so quickly. It's extremely frightening and extremely disturbing. And it seems to be happening almost through this, I don't know what to call it, like process of like peer pressure that is driven largely by social media i'm like germany like the like it it was amazing to me that like to see people who are you know not i don't think on the left but certainly people who are progressives are cheering on this like german militarization it's like what is happening you know like um like remember what germany yeah the one thing you probably learned in history class you know like (laughs) like what is happening here it's it's just bizarre um but. Sophie, I was curious to pick up on something you said earlier where um, every Ukrainian or Ukraine aware person you know doesn't want to talk about leftists, hates leftists. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a piece in Open Democracy that circulated pretty widely by a Ukrainian historian and activist called Taras Belus, and the title is A Letter to the Western Left from Kyiv. And I know Andy had strong feelings about this piece, and um, it was hotly debated in our Discord chat room. And I'm, so I'm curious what um, you think about it. I'll just 
quickly summarize it for folks who haven't read it. Basically, Belus is making an argument from a city under siege, you know, quote unquote, saying, hey, campists or tankiists or this sort of anti-imperial left in the Western world, you're making all the wrong arguments. It's not okay to align yourselves with Putin. It's not okay to see, you know, Ukraine as a sort of toy in this kind of, you know, real power politics that you guys want to play. Um you know, so it's basically an indictment of, of some of the kind of tankiest politics that we have previously criticized on our show, but in a different region. So I'm curious what you thought about it. Um, well, first of all, I would just say that, you know, I have infinite sympathy for every Ukrainian right now. Um, it's just like the existence of you. Ukraine is like at risk of annihilation, basically, right now. Um, and it's unclear like how devastating the the results will be. So basically, any amount of anger and hostility from Ukrainians, I have sympathy for. Um, but and also, I mean, the, the the whole like the whole tanky thing also is incredibly stupid and really bad, and I have no sympathy <laughs> for that. Um, but, but is that the kind of leftism that, that you're saying the Ukrainians are kind of mad about? Like they see the Western left and that's the argument they're seeing Western leftists make? Or really what, what, like, uh, what but I, but well, that's my question. Of, like, yeah. like I wonder what like, the... DSA's tweets or something? Like, well, people I mean, are really mad. He was. About D- yeah, people yeah. are so... Many, multiple people have brought that up to me. Like they're just like, yeah. Western leftists are sick. Um, the DSA statement is a disgrace. The stop the war statement is a disgrace. I mean, and DSA really, I I don't even, I didn't even read that DSA statement carefully. I was just like, I don't want to know what this says, but because they, I don't know. I mean, DSA and a lot of other leftist groups, like they, they just talk about things that they have no knowledge of. And it's like, if you want to make a serious comment on this, why don't you first speak to someone who is knowledgeable about it? And actually there are leftists from Ukraine and from Russia sure. who would be happy to help you. Um, actually, there's a, a really great leftist commentator from uh, Russia called Ilya Matveyev, um, who was, he had some interview in Jacobin and he posted it on social media and was like, yeah, like, sorry, tankies. Like, you can start calling me a CIA stooge again for what I say <laughs> in this interview. But it's like, it's like, if you're like a leftist who's harassing, like, important Russian leftist thinkers for sharing their views on Russia and Ukraine, like, what are you doing? Pull yourself mm-hmm. together. But at the same time, it se- it does seem like this idea of like the 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 stupid American leftist who loves Putin has been yeah. inflated like way way right. way out of proportion. I mean, I've I don't know anyone who loves Putin. They're mm-hmm. mostly just you know really against U.S. intervention and are profoundly ignorant about Russia and Ukraine. To right. be fair, but it's not it's not because they love Putin. Yeah, um, it's because they hate American intervention. So I think there's a misunderstanding that's going on on both sides. Mm-hmm. And I wish that there would be more kind of um, meaningful consumption of um, of leftist thinkers from Russia and Ukraine, because there are some. I agree. Who, yeah. who write in English and whose work is available to English speakers. Yeah, it's been weird. I don't know. I I guess I just like I, if they are aware of like what DSA is doing and stuff like that. That's uh, that's surprising. I guess I just read stuff like that sometimes, and I just think, okay, 
like I can see the dance you're trying to do to perfectly triangulate yourself in this thing, and like nobody cares, you know. Like, <laughs> like you can dance all you want, and I, I just don't. I'm never gonna. You care mean like DSA you, is right, right, or like certain well, parts of the left where it's like where it's so theoretical and it's so like it feels like somebody is shitting out a literal brick, you know, where it's like so there's so much effort in it, and um, and I just imagine that that. The, that people over there, much like myself, just ignore when that happens and just say, listen, I'm on your team, but like, you know, like, I don't know what is going on in your head right now. But if, if it does have some influence over there, that's, that's surprising. Yeah. Well, that's the thing, though, is that it doesn't have any influence over there, right? It doesn't right. affect or they're anything aware of it, right? real. It just makes people enraged. Right. Uh, which is kind of like the story of social media. <laughs> right. I was going to say, I think. yeah. And I mean, yeah. you know, like sometimes you talk to people and you're like, you're like, you, I can understand why you're mad about that DSA statement, but just so you know, it has no effect on anything that exists in the world. <laughs> like, it's like, it's just like an annoying thing. Some guy said one time, like, right. but right. it's much better to criticize the actions of like the American government. Right. or the Russian government, or NATO, or the EU, like someone who has any kind of power, like a DSA statement is just a statement, it doesn't affect anything. But but yeah, these things get blown up, right? And then you get this kind of alternate reality where there are, there are a lot of people who think that like DSA making this statement is having an effect on US policy towards Ukraine, which is like so... <laughs> Hilarious. I wish DSA were that, po- were yeah, that exactly. powerful, right? Like, <laughs> exactly. I have a, Bi- I have Biden's, a like, Biden's like, DSA told me not to do it. <laughs> exactly. like, yeah, exactly. I'm going to change my course. Yeah. I got a, uh, I have a question about something you said before, because I think it's something that I, you could, I, th- I don't know. I think a lot of, I think it's a somewhat common question and, you know, it's something that maybe it's too simple even like, uh, but like, can you, this idea that this would be like the United States invading Vancouver, for example, right? Like I, I, I thought I had a similar thought. Maybe I read about it or something. I don't think it was an original thought, but I was like, man, it's like people basically speak the same language. Like you, you know, and you, you wrote in the first Zelensky piece you wrote, like a lot of the stuff is about him is about like, it's about language, right? Um, the people, as you can see, like some of it was seemed pretty racist, but you know, like people saying, well, they look like me, you know, and therefore it hurts more or something like that. But like, that's just a fundamental truth of that people are going, if you speak the same language, a person looks like you, then you're going to be more affected by images of them dying because, you know, people are racist, right? But like, um, can you talk about the, the sort of ways in which Russians and Ukrainians think of themselves in terms of kinship toward, like, uh, towards one another, like historically? And not going into the entire history, but, you know, like the ways in which that might be affecting stuff that's going on here, because like you see, all, like, I have no idea if these are real images or not, or if these are real videos or not. But, you know, you have people saying like, look, we speak the same language. Like, why are you here? What are you doing? Right. And then you have like Russian soldiers saying like, I, I don't know. You know, I just want to go home. Um, like, I imagine that's kind of what would happen to the United States, like invaded Canada, for example. Right. Like, it would just be like, I can't kill these people like right like I, my brain hasn't been trained to think of them as less than human um yeah could you could you talk about that a little bit wow do you do you have seven hours yeah. <laughs> um, in two yeah, minutes I mean, it all goes back to the founding of kiev and rus in <laughs> yeah, the 10th yeah. century right, <laughs> um, right. seriously it does. But, yeah i mean 
um, what we now think of as Russian culture began in Kiev, right? Kiev is the is the ancient seat of, of Russian culture, and then it kind of moved north after the Mongols invaded, um, but and sacked Kiev. Um, but the yeah, so it's an incredibly profound and long-lasting historical relationship. But then, of course, you know, there's also this element of sort of of colonial oppression. Um, and of course, you know, we have a different understanding of racism now that depends on sort of relatively larger differences. Um, but in Europe in the 18th or 19th century, um, much finer distinctions, right, were enough for a group to be um, sort of persecuted and subjugated and made a subaltern, right? Um, mm -hmm. So the Ukrainians started um, sort of militating for independence uh, really in the 19th century um, and were viewed as inferior by Russians, right? Um, their language was looked down upon um, and they were seen as these kind of ignorant, um, ignorant peasants. Um, and, and eventually, you know, kept kept fighting for independence intermittently. Um, and then there were, was a Ukrainian independence movement in the Soviet Union, of course. Um, one historical touchstone for this conflict that is one of the main things that um, Russia has used to try to make it okay for Russians to kill Ukrainians is, the, is what happened in World War II, right? Um, when there, I mean, a lot of Ukrainians, of course, fought on the side of Russia in World War II, but there was a small, there were some Ukrainians who were partisans, who were anti-Soviet partisans, and a subset of those partisans um, intermittently collaborated with the Nazis during the Second World War. Um, and this is one of arguably the most contentious issue in Ukrainian historiography. Um, and the Soviet Union was mm. extremely bent on kind of hunting down every single um, Ukrainian nationalist. And, mm. you know, and this is why Putin talks about Nazis in Ukraine. Yeah, that's that's the memory that he's invoking, obviously, extremely mm -hmm. disingenuously and yeah. manipulatively. Um, but and that that's actually also one of the worst um, strains of behavior in the Western left is sort of uncritically just repeating that the Ukrainian government is a Nazi government or something like that. Um, you see a lot of really big generalizations. And there is a real issue with the Ukrainian far right, but people who don't really don't understand the nuances of it tend to grossly exaggerate it. But anyway, so Putin... Um, Putin evokes the memory of what happened in World mm -hmm. War II and talks about Banderites. And, um, so that's used to justify killing Ukrainians. But, you know, the day-to-day -day reality is that a, tons of Russians have family in Ukraine, have roots in Ukraine, and likewise, Ukrainians have roots in Russia. You know, I mean, I have a lot of friends who, you know, some of their relatives live in Russia and some of them mm -hmm. live in Ukraine. They've, like, passed their lives in both Russia and Ukraine, and you just, like, go go used to go back and forth quite freely it's changed yeah. in the last few years but there's just so much kind of interaction um, and that's definitely part of um, 
part of the reason that a lot of Russians are so disturbed by this, you know, unfortunately seeing people close by whose cities you've spent time in where you have relatives who look like you and share language with you tends to upset people a lot more than knowing that your government is bombing people across the world who you can't communicate with, have never met, have never visited and so on. Yeah. Why why isn't that nationalist right wing sort of more like winning out right now? Right. Like when it seemed like, Oh, um, you know, this sort of rush, you know, Russians, his first language, Jewish, um, you know, comedian has failed us. And now we're in this position. And you know, like, we need to sort of fight for Ukraine for Ukrainians, like some of the, the stuff that Zelensky is saying is, you know, as one does when they're invaded, I imagine is very nationalistic, right? Like, is there is has there been a, like a certain or a surge of, of support for the right? Like, or is it really just that like Zelensky is so powerful or is so popular right now and that people have sort of thrown their, their, uh, their support behind him? I think that there is just very intense solidarity right now for Ukrainians because the threat is, is like so sudden and so overwhelming. There is no space for disagreeing with each other right now. Um, and everyone is kind of is is working together. I mean, the the rhetoric that Zelensky uses is very different from um, what some other members of the government use. They 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 tend to use sort of much more nationalistic language, um, you know, not not like far right language, um, but but much more nationalistic language than than what Zelensky uses, which is kind of. Uh, deliberately neutral even sometimes as I wrote about in the piece that I published today. Um, But, but yeah, I mean, it's like their capital is at risk of being taken. They're being bombed continuously. I think there's, there's no room for arguing or fighting. Um, They've just, they've sort of rallied behind the president and are working together very, very impressively. Andy, are you back? You had a yeah, sorry. internet. <laughs> I, know. I found the Ethernet cable, like dug it out of the uh, the closet. Um, I don't know. I mean, I had, I had some thoughts in terms of the comparison with East Asia. I don't know if we want to go there yet. Um, that could be like a separate conversation. Um, but do you want to? The other thing I was kind of thinking of, is it worth kind of speculating, even though like the news changes every day? Like, what do we think about the response so far? Like Sophie mentioned, like, it, I am also like disturbed at the militaristic aspect of it. Um, there's also been discussion that these sanctions are like sanctions are, you know, supposedly the way to go because they're quote unquote peaceful, but these seem to be sort of like on a brand new scale or, or unprecedented scale in terms of ruining an economy this big. And especially for nuclear power. Um, I, I don't know. Like there was one article by Anatole Levin, Levin, at, um, the responsible statecraft, which outlined to me what I thought was the most sensible scenario, which is sanctions plus diplomacy equals, you know, hopefully a quick end to this, but um, I don't know, like, what do we all think in terms of how this is looking right now? Um, like, I don't know, do we, like, is milit- is are we going to see, like, more military escalation? Yeah, so, I mean, do you think, like, it seemed like a lot of people are like, oh, maybe it'll be over by next week, you know, a few days ago. But, like, do you, do you think that that's, like, totally out the window now because of what happened this morning? I think probably, I mean, Look, I didn't expect the Russians to attack Kiev, so I don't, I don't, yeah. I don't yeah. want to predict don't anything. Don't place your bets on Sophie. Yeah, don't trust <laughs> me. Um, but um, I don't, 
this is a really, 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 really bad situation. Um, right. And I think it unfortunately will probably get a lot worse before it gets better. And I think that everyone should be extremely wary of these narratives that are circulating of like the Ukrainians are so brave that they will win in three yeah. or four days. And right. Putin right. will turn around and leave. It's like, yeah, Putin has one of the most powerful militaries in the world. And like the Ukrainians are incredibly brave and are doing an amazing job, but they're a very small, very poor country with right. a weak military. Like that's, the, that's just a horrible reality. And I hope yeah. that Putin turns around and leaves, but also, I mean, sanctions, like Putin's been under sanctions since 2014. Yeah. They're used to having sanctions and they've to a large extent adapted to sanctions. Um, and there are plenty of people to trade with who are not sanctioning yeah. Russia. China. Yeah. Notably China. <laughs> um, so and they're not, they're not sanctioning energy yet. Right. So, and that's like the big, well, that's a Germany thing, right? Like Germany gets something like 40% energy. of its energy through, through right. Russia. Right? And so Europe like, cannot yeah. do without right. um, Russian energy. And that's the other tragic thing that almost no one is talking about is the kind of climate aspect yeah. of this. And, really. you know, Europe, Europe should be like, beating itself over its failure to have a green transition in the last 10 years because if europe had had a green transition and had stopped being totally reliant on russian energy to the point where we could be in like a world war with russia and europe would still be importing gas from russia because they can't they just can't heat their inhabitants houses without it um if they had had a green transition you know who knows how how effectively they actually would have been able to stop it. Cause it's like, you know, this whole thing of like sanctioning some guy's wife. It's like, that's not how you change the course of a society. You know, um, Russia's power comes from its, from its military and it's oil and gas, you know? Yeah. And it's military is funded by its oil and gas. If the world had made a bigger effort to not be totally dependent on fossil fuels, which would also, you know, be really good for other reasons um putin would be vastly less powerful um and obviously you can't have a green transition like now suddenly before winter ends um but it's really this is a a tragic result of um of the failure to have a green transition and there was one i can't remember which german minister it was but there was one german minister who was just like security depends on green energy um, and it's true. And he was like yeah. a lonely voice. And meanwhile, the rest of Germany is like, let's spend two percent of our GDP on totally. the military now and burn coal. Let's have let's start burning well, coal again. Then we'll be free. My my friend who's like on the weird parts of the internet said a lot of people are mad at Greta Thunberg because she's anti nuclear. And if only they had gone to nuclear <laughs> oh by now, then they would have been off the Russian. Anyway, <laughs> <laughs> that's a very small part of the green part yeah. of this criteria. <laughs> yeah. I hear you. I don't, um, Andy. I, I am interested. I mean, I know we've kept Sophie for a while, so maybe we should wrap soon. But um, I am curious to if we could talk a little bit about East Asia, because of course people are making the China Taiwan comparison, yeah. and I think a lot in a lot of you know sort of small state to big state you know polls around the world, people are having this conversation of like, what does this invasion mean for me? Yeah, yeah, totally. So um, I did reach out to some friends. Um, you know, it's obviously select crew. It's like my family and friends. And then like a lot of these friends are like, you know, elites, you know, they're academics and Taiwanese Americans. Um, the 
the ruling part of the DPPs was, you know, they issued the statement that like, we're not Ukraine. A, we have a water border and B, we have this kind of strategic location in the global economy. But I think, I think everyone's reaction is like, uh, this is like a little like, you know, doth protest too much. Like you're saying this precisely because everyone kind of knows you are like Ukraine mm-hmm. and, and the, they are kind of like the equivalent, the analogy really, really works. And from, it seems like everyone in Taiwan gets it. Like they understand this analogy and then the reaction kind of splits along the sort of typical domestic political divisions in terms of people who are pro-unification versus not necessarily independent Taiwan, but like anti-unification with China. Um, Talking to friends, and this is like, I don't know, listen to Sophie talk now about her sort of like pessimistic view, which I think is probably more realistic, honestly, about what's going to happen might put a, uh, my kind of, uh, what's for like douse this with water. But a lot of my friends were saying they were kind of encouraged, they're heartened by the Ukrainian people's resistance um, and hoping that um, this would like, A, that, you know, Ukraine would kind of like stave off Russia militarily and this would be like a good indication that Taiwan could do the same with China if that ever happened. Or even like to go a step further, like if if Russia really doesn't get any, really does kind of, I don't know, fail, whatever, stalemate, whatever, this might deter China from even trying down the road. Um, and I like I got to say, like last week when this first began, I was pretty like kind of depressed thinking like this is going to be, this, this is a wrap, you know, this is going to happen. And same thing could happen in Taiwan any moment as things have begun to turn, although, you know one shouldn't get too optimistic, I was starting to think, oh, actually, this could wind up being like an instructive lesson for China not to do something like this with Taiwan. But um, I don't know. Like, Why? I guess because I'm, of like all the bad, like because of what uh, Sophie was talking about in terms of when you get hit with sanctions, everyone hit, like right. the world is like, yeah, like the world you. is all turned against you. And yeah. For, and, and for what, you know, like, uh, right. just because you're like, I'm, I just don't want to this itch where they keep trying to join NATO. I'm, sick of right. it you know just, yeah so like for one right. thing there is no nato for taiwan to join like they've already they're, they're kind of okay with the status quo right and so there i don't know if the line to cross would be now obviously maybe china doesn't give a shit they just want to do it anyway but beyond that you know my friend uh friend of the show albert albert and michelle were saying you know you kind of think strategically like the u.s has tried to do this obama-esque pivot right from europe to asia um and sort of this so in terms of like you know so if you're saying there's ambiguity how much quote unquote, the West would back up Ukraine, you know, last week, mm-hmm. there was less ambiguity in terms of Taiwan, right? They're like the United States, but also like their allies and Japan, they've all kind of committed that if something happened, they would back Taiwan. Um, now that might just be bluster, who knows, right? But in terms of like that kind of side-by-side comparison, it does seem like the United States would have more of a stake in Taiwan, um, just from a like totally amoral, naked geopolitical reasoning. Uh, perspective um and i don't know despite exercising strategic ambiguity they like military yeah exactly commit to the that's and so that's the thing it's like and this is i think my like uh my journey this last week is thinking about i think i've always kind of wanted to avoid this like what what would happen like what would i want to see happen if china invaded taiwan because obviously like my heart would be like i hope the u.s protects them i hope someone protects them and all that but like intellectually you still kind of wonder like like I don't know, like U.S. hegemony in the Pacific. Is this, do we want this, like, do we need the United States to protect all the countries in the Pacific, like, um, forever, you know? Um, So there's a bit of a contradiction between the heart and the brain, or the brain, yeah, yeah, the heart and the brain there, Um, which I think was probably always there, but I think this week has kind of forced me to think about it more because of, like, it, it, it had always been so abstract before this last week.
Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not, I'd be curious, like with, you know, our listeners who are actually from Taiwan or in Taiwan would think, um, I'm much more of a outsider in that, but I think that is, these are some of the contradictory emotions. I think that in Taiwan though, most, there've been a lot of rallies and protests and most Taiwanese people identify with Ukraine and support Ukraine and they hope like Ukraine wins, you know, whatever that means. Um, yeah, what as, does that mean? You know, uh, like, yeah, I think, so I think it, you said it. Well, I mean, the contrast, the conflict between yeah. the heart and the brain, like, I think that's how I feel about Ukraine also. Um, yeah. And especially, I mean, when the war first started, I was just like, you know, I'm so anti-war. I'm so anti-escalation right. in general. But I was just like, my heart is telling me to like yeah. nuke Russia. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was like, all my, all my like sort of pacifist leaning right. principles are like collapsing. All Where are the Navy SEALs? I'm just, yeah, I'm just like, I'm just like, kill Vladimir Putin. Like, yeah. family, you know, because um, I just so want to kill the motherfuckers. Yeah. Be okay. And, yeah. And right. To be safe. But right. I think it is true that um that this this definitely does raise the stakes of of you know other big countries trying to eat smaller neighbors like and i i I don't know that i'm not you know i'm not super knowledgeable about china but it does seem like china is like relatively kind of risk averse most of the time and yeah like people have said that yeah if this was going to be the cost of you know trying to consume yeah. taiwan that they might be much more likely right. to think twice about it which i guess is good although like what is the cost of, of that benefit um it seems extremely large but right now but... it seems like what they were saying was like both parties it used to be like this debate within taiwan like should we buy more weapons from the u.s like are we wasting our money and now it seems like everyone is really into buying weapons from the u.s and also like even doing military training for like everyone like drills yeah. in school that kind of thing might be yeah. make, might be making a comeback well, yeah. like military drills in Taiwanese schools, like what? Like you know, hide under the desk or something, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Always yeah. a great defense. Run up to the Run up to the roof and grab the machine gun. So yeah, I have one last question before I let you go here. Um, uh, if this if this does drag on, right? Um, and let's all hope that it does not, right? Um, what? What do you expect the United States response will be? Like, will there be a different response um, from from the United States or even the West towards this? Like, do you do you foresee any type of greater intervention? Um, honest, again, like honestly, I don't. I really don't <laughs> know. I really, really can't say. Um, it seems unlikely to me. And again, I think there is the gas issue. I mean, when Biden has talked about this, he just talks so much about like the price of the gas pump. And, um, you know, if this causes an international um, kind of oil and gas crisis, um, that seems to be something that the Democrats are really, really afraid of. Um, So I don't know about that. It's to me, it seems really unlikely that Biden will get into a sort of full-fledged conflict. But again, I'm really surprised at how rapidly and how extremely this has escalated. And um, now Putin has like ramped up the threat level so much by kind of talking explicitly about like the nuclear warning level or whatever it is um, that I just can't say. But I, I just really hope that people will try to kind of remain level-headed and sort of think out um, think out the consequences of these decisions that are being 
being made so quickly, um, sort of for peace, for safety, um, for the economy, for climate. Um, I mean, the idea that this is pushing, you know, all of Europe to, you know, burn more coal and spend more on the military is so horrifying. (laughs) Like that's so much the wrong lesson to be taking from this. And it's like everyone is going in the wrong direction, even though, again, you know, I, I desperately want Ukraine to survive this conflict. Hmm. Well, yeah. Thanks for <laughs> on that Kimmy inspiring you- note. <laughs> I, I felt like that was extremely clarifying, though, in terms of you know, I think people are torn in different directions, especially on the left about this, right? Like uh, nobody can defend Putin um, or mm-hmm. the invasion and you know the human suffering that we've seen yet, right? Like um, it's not so simple as like just tweeting about hey, you know, go go Ukraine. So. Um, yeah, thank you. Um, thank you. Tammy, you, know, you don't, the world's, you're good. Yeah, I was just going to say, so we had asked Sophie if she had anything to plug and she, you know, wanted, she had told us that the Red Cross Ukraine is a good place to donate. So if listeners wanted to support there with their money, that would be good. Mm-hmm. And just emphasizing that this is a humanitarian crisis as well, a refugee crisis. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, the last time I checked, 350,000 Ukrainians had already left yeah. the country and among wow. them like many people i know who who knows what will happen to them so yeah. i hope that people will a um yeah try to donate money to humanitarian aid for refugees and also um you know try try to lobby for asylum and so on for ukrainians well while bearing in mind that it's not just you know the blonde ukrainians who need refugee assistance are they are they very blonde like they are very they are very blonde actually you know ukraine used to be the uh the primary source of blonde wigs because it was the world's leading poor country with lots of blonde women with beautiful hair oh wow yeah there was i remember like you would encounter like wig makers in ukraine who were like kind Mm. of going around kind of trying (laughs) to like get women's hair east asian overlap yeah, we, did a whole we, episode had, on we had a wig episode. Yeah, <laughs> oh, we did. We had a wig episode. Yeah, with Jenny. Jenny, on Korean wigs. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. yeah. see, that's another, another kinship. Another kinship. Totally. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, well, uh, we, I can just do that outro for the show later. But um, yeah, thanks for thank you thanks so, for yeah, thanks so much. On. It was this my was pleasure. Great. It was great to talk to you. And um, I thought your, I don't know, I thought the piece that you wrote in the review was. Really great. I mean, new piece today too. Um, yeah. Wow, this is really helpful. Really. Also, just very well written. Good. <laughs> yeah. Very um, okay. Great. Thanks so much, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank okay. you, guys. Bye. Sei con me, con me, come a luna, sei qui con me.